Hello and welcome to the For the Wind podcast. I'm Ted Berg. My producer, Hamil Javeri, is still on vacation in India, but we like to do a Q&A session late in the week, and so I've got my colleague, Luke Curdenine, here to help out. Luke, what's up? What's up, Ted? How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I- we are both snowed in, I, I assume. Yeah, I just want to say that I like how you clarified immediately that I am your second choice on this podcast. No, no, it's not about that. It's not about that. I just, I don't know. I mean, I feel like uh, we kind of miss Hemel here. You know, she has a lot lot of input. It's like, it's fun to, while she's gone, talk about things she doesn't like to talk about, specifically food. But, uh, you know, in the interim, uh, we can talk about whatever, I guess. I I just like to know where she is. You know, people who got accustomed to Hemel's input on Thursdays and Fridays. This is why it's not like we fired her. I don't think I have the capacity or the right to do that. I don't think I, I yeah. could if I wanted to. I don't want to, but I don't think I could either way. No, yes, we do miss Hemel. Never, I would never tell her, of course. But we Right, well, she might, <laughs> she'll, might, probably will listen when she gets back. So be nice is the thing. Okay. Okay, okay, we'll try, we'll try. All right. Um, are you, in fact, snowed in some 100 yards from where I'm snowed in? Yes, I think we're, like, in an end-of-the-world type scenario, it would be a, it would be a situation where I'd be like, okay, I don't know anyone around here, but I know one person who's 200 yards away from where I'm speaking right now. <laughs> yeah, I think you are probably the person I know who lives closest to me. Right, so in an end-of-the-world, snowed my in... That's my wife. She lives closer than you do. Okay. So the plan is that in a day day after tomorrow type scenario, we're going to have to try to consolidate our locations at some point. Uh, speak for yourself? <laughs> <laughs> uh, would be my take. I would just say I got a plan. So if you want to help out, if you've got something to, to offer, uh, you're welcome, but I, you would need to bring something to the table. I'm going to arm up, and I'm going to take the Guggenheim and I'm going to set up, set up shop at, like, the top floor of the Guggenheim. So you're immediately going into pirate mode oh, in, yeah. like, oh, in, yeah. in, in this sort of zombie situ- in this zombie scenario. Like, you're just turning into one of the human pirates that every other human has to be Like, give me, like, 25 minutes tops, and, and I'm, <laughs> like, I'm pillaging. Uh, like, every horrible thing that people might do in those circumstances, I am doing, and I'm going to be the first guy doing them. Well, I remember us talking in a Facebook Live a while ago about how that if we had superpowers, we would instantly use them for, uh, not, not necessarily for, uh, for bad, but, but not necessarily for good either. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, no, we, no, we'd be very amoral about our superpowers. Well, it's something I actually thought about in terms of the, uh, you know, and, and I don't want to drift into politics here, but, you know, the, the idea that climate change might be a Chinese hoax, uh, seems fascinating to me because if it was, like, if you developed the power to control the, the weather and you had the discipline to not just, like, start making storms wherever and doing all sorts of crazy weather stuff, but instead, like, very slowly make it look like the world was getting warmer due to human activity... And you were the person who invented the one thing that could turn things around. That is an incredible, incredible play. Like, that is such a good hoax to pull off. If you could really pull off controlling the weather first and foremost, and then using it, you know, again, not for, like, immediate uh, weather-related 
uh, what catastrophes, whatever you want to do, but rather as like a slow burn to convince the whole world to you know that you have the solution to this problem that you've invented. That would be Absolutely. a cool hoax. That would be a cool hoax. It would be a cool hoax, and if you could control the weather in so, in some amazing way, it would be a really big asset in terms of uh, in terms of like Olympic bids, for example. You know, be like, hey, come to, you know, yeah, come. we're the only place it's sunny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need what what yeah, what temperature should we dial it up to on December twenty? You know, on yeah. December twenty first. Just let us know a few days in advance. We'll get that happening. <laughs> no, I mean, controlling the weather obviously would be a huge superpower, right? I think that would probably be. Like, that, that's got to top what basically anything Superman could do, right? If you could just control all the weather. Well, I guess, like, my question would be, like, how... To what extent are you controlling the weather? Are you doing it, like, Storm and the X-Men, where you can, like, shoot snow at people? Or can you just make it snow? You know, because those I are two very you, different... I think you, like, control all of, like, the tides and pressure systems and... All of the things that weathermen talk about and weather women, weather persons speak about that I don't fully understand that go into the weather. I think you have like a, an ability to sort of like compose that like a like a like a Mozart of the weather, and you could just the weather is always going to be exactly how you want it to be everywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The only problem with this is that I feel like if this superpower became known, like if you could control the weather, suddenly, oh, come on. you know, like, yeah, you, you would suddenly be uh, in a situation where you'd be guilted into uh, running a bunch of errands, essentially. You know, hurricane would be we forming. The like, Ted, yeah, we got, yeah. yeah, Ted, we need you to stop this hurricane. Ted, it's, it's a little, it's flooding in this place. Ted. Oh, uh, <laughs> no, see, in this circumstance, it's like I'm, I'm making the hurricanes. You know, like, it's like, <laughs> Everybody just knows they're like, and instead of like Ted, we need you to stop this. It's like Ted, what did we do wrong? <laughs> Ted, why? Why does <laughs> it never stop raining in St. Louis? I don't get it. <laughs> right, no, they're still on probation. They're still on probation. <laughs> We've got some questions, and I want to take them. Uh, we, I should warn you uh, before we get into it. It's baseball season's about to start, so we've got a lot of baseball questions here. We've got some non-baseball questions here, a few food ones. Uh, if you've got any any baseball input, uh, you're not a, the biggest baseball fan. Uh, I think people could probably guess from the accent, um, but we've got some golf questions too, at least one. Um, some food questions you can chime in, and, and feel free to chime in with any baseball thoughts you might have, because some of these, I will say, are probably better answered by someone who doesn't spend as much time with baseball as I do. Uh, for example, uh, I will say, um, this comes from our colleague, uh, Eddie Timonis or Timonis. Do you know how to pronounce Eddie's last name? I don't, unfortunately, which is a bit of a, which is a, bit of a, a black mark on my record, considering my name is also impossibly hard to pronounce. I should right. make this a Well, point, Eddie... A former Jeopardy champion, which makes him my idol, basically, because that's my life goal. Uh, Eddie wants to know, uh, we're counting on you to quash this starting with a runner on second thing. What are your plans to fight this potential atrocity? Um, so, Luke, Major League Baseball is invested in finding ways to make the game faster for a variety of reasons. And... There have been tons and tons of proposed solutions, some of which they try out at the minor league level, and the most recent of which, and the most sort of uh, jarring of recent suggestions, 
is that this year the league will apparently start experimenting with, and, and this is going to happen at the lowest levels of the minor leagues, places where in some cases they don't even charge admission and where maybe 500 to 1,000 people are showing up on any given night. They're going to start in extra innings, starting every inning with a runner on second base. The idea being that someone will score faster and it will make the game end sooner. It's uh, So this is actually interesting. I can actually speak to this because golf has the exact same problem. Like, mm-hmm. especially in uh, big events like major championships, everyone talks about how the, play, the, the rounds are taking too long, that it's too slow, that how do we speed it up, how do we make it more entertaining, yet. And I suspect, like, uh, solutions like that are maybe an overcooked, uh, I, an overcooked solution to the original problem, like an overcorrection. Um, I don't know what it is in baseball, though I suspect it's the same problem, but in golf, it's simply a matter of the players aren't, ta- uh, the players are taking too long to hit the ball, period. Yeah. I mean, like, that, is, that is, yeah, that is exactly it, the issue in baseball, and, and, and go and on. It's re- yeah, so, yes, sorry to interrupt, and it's really not much more complicated than that, like, and they, they take too long to hit the ball, um, they... Uh, and then when they're under pressure, they take even longer to hit the ball. And the governing bodies uh, are either too scared or have no appetite to try to clamp down on this because the players are going to really not like it because suddenly they'll have to speed up their routines. And it's it's really like, so we can talk about like making golf holes shorter or putting a runner on second in extra innings, which I don't, I don't even know. I can't even imagine a st- statistically significant number of games are going to extra innings for this to be worthwhile in the long run, but I could be wrong on that. But, it, but at the end of the day, it's, it's the accumulation of all these extra seconds from every single player that slows the game down, not one specific thing. Yeah, I think that is exactly correct. And, and I would say that the second base thing, it's not gonna, I don't think it's ever going to happen in the majors because I think it's too far from... I think baseball, uh, so many baseball fans are sort of stodgy and stuffed shirt about how they enjoy baseball, and baseball is a very sort of inherently nostalgic thing. So, you know, such a wild change of the rules, I think, would, would cause a lot of people, and has caused a lot of people, to get upset and say, why are they doing this? Um, I don't think it happens in the major league level. I kind of get it happening in the minor leagues, because in the minor leagues, you're dealing with young pitchers, and uh, the games ultimately don't really matter, right? And so now you're going to go to a 17-inning, 18-inning long game, and you're going to force some 22-year-old kid to throw three more innings than he should, and, and that jeopardizes his health and his arm, and I don't think they should have to do that. So I would even say you could have ties in the minors, right? Like, they have, they have ties in spring training. It's the only time they have ties in baseball games. I would be fine with the minor leagues saying, you know what, we're not going to do extra innings during the regular season. We're going to have ties because we need to save all these kids' arms. Fine by me. Second, put a guy on second base uh, in rookie ball. Uh, it's It sounds ridiculous, but uh, for, in the minors, fine. I think in the majors, the problem with it is it then uh, rewards skills that are part of baseball, but not necessarily the main skills of baseball, right? If you're starting an inning with a runner on second base and no outs, uh, you are putting, and maybe this is part of the idea, maybe this is something baseball wants, but you are then uh, putting a very strong emphasis on 
guys who can put the ball in play, which is not necessarily the best thing to do, right? Like, there are times when you just want to swing for the fences, and if you hit a home run, uh, you it's so much better than, you know, the, the negative aspect of striking out. You'd always rather put a ball in play than strike out, but... Again, it's like a it's a it's a trade off you're making. You're selling out for power, so to speak. Whereas yeah. if there's a runner on second base, you need to now now you want to score that one run. Now you want guys who are you know hitting the ball weakly to the opposite side, so you can move that guy over. And that's uh, a skill that used to be beloved in baseball. The guys who do the little things, but uh, it, part of the reason it sort of went out of style is that it ultimately does not help a baseball team win the way hitting a 450-foot homer does. Me, as a baseball fan, I'd always rather see a game end on a 450-foot homer than like a well-placed grounder to the opposite field. So yeah. I don't see it and happening. I, and I suspect, too, that like these... The, the, there are two separate arguments here that are getting created, or two uh, that are getting conflated. Excuse me. Um, the first is that baseball is taking too slow. The second one is that we need to make baseball more entertaining. Those are those are two different those are two different things, right? Like sometimes they can intertwine. Sometimes you can say if we make the game faster, it'll be more entertaining. But um, even if you put like if even if you try like pumping up the score in these individual games as they've done in say football uh, with their passing rules. Um, you still are going to run into issues to do with time, right? And vice versa. So, like, well, yeah, I, I mean, presumably a longer, a more scoring would mean a longer game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think the difference on the tie thing. I will say that it's interest. I always find it interesting that there are no, uh, that there are that there are no kind of leagues that actually allow for ties really in America and baseball strikes me as one where you could get away with it. I mean the problem is when you force, so there, there are ties in Premier League soccer and um, the reason why everybody's kind of okay with it is because it's a big season by their standards over there. It's a 38 game season, regular season and, um, and when you have ties it's, it's actually fine because these things tend to sort themselves out, right? right. Like you don't want to force results um, because when you end up trying to force results, you end up seeing like weird upsets happen, which is fun in the moment, but then it ends up kind of screwing up. It ends up masking who the better teams are because it, it turns like three ties, which is better for a team, uh, for, for the better team in that situation rather than like them flukely losing three or two of those uh, those games that would have otherwise been tied. So with the 162 game season, I'm always slightly surprised that like they try to force a result in like what I don't know how many games, what percentage of games go to overtime. But why are you trying to force a result in those? Like all it's going to do is like makes it, it allows for something weird to happen. I think. Well, uh, but see, see that's the thing, and that's the other part of this to me is I I don't see I don't. I can't imagine, like you said, it's such a small percentage of games that go to extra innings and an even smaller percentage that goes past 11 or 12 or 13 innings, right? The, the true marathon games where you're really talking about, you know, bringing in an opposing uh, position player to pitch or running out of guys, uh, all of those silly things that happen, they happen so rarely that for a fan, it's kind of amazing. The Mets and Cardinals played a 20-inning game uh, maybe five years ago, and it was one of the most, and it was a horribly played game, really, on both sides, and one of the most fun games I've ever watched because it just, at some point, it just gets ridiculous. And in that game, the Cardinals were basically 
giving the Mets the win. They just kept bringing in position players to pitch, and the Mets couldn't take the win from them, which made it extremely fun. Like, it was a fun thing to watch. I, I don't mind. I don't think the problem that baseball's trying to address is extra inning games. I think it's what you said. It's it's cramming more action into a smaller window of time. And this goes into another question we got, which is from Kristen H. Sensenig. Uh, she wants to know, when, where is MLB getting the impression that fans want a shorter game? And she says, not rhetorical. I'm curious where this is originating. And I think... Um, I assume that if baseball wants this, there's... like there, it's Major League Baseball is such a well-run organization in terms of figuring out how to make money that I feel like they've got someone, uh, some market research that shows, like, you will be able to add more fans by, uh, by making the game shorter. But I would say that uh, I don't know that it's fans. I don't know that it's existing baseball fans who need this to happen. I think it's part of the league's effort to reach more fans that it wants this to happen. Being a baseball fan... Uh, 162-game season is a massive commitment, right? That means that every single one of your summer nights is occupied. If you were a die-hard, you know, dyed-in-the-wool fan, every night in the summer is occupied by watching baseball. And that's how I spend my summer. It's how most of my friends spend their summer, and it's cool. But I could understand the idea that it's easier to draw people in if you're talking about a two-and-a-half to three-hour window instead of a three- to four-hour window, which is increasingly what it takes for a baseball game. Frankly, a game starts at, at 7.15. A lot of the time, I want to go to bed before it's even over, and, and I don't really think that should be the case. I guess I'm probably... Again, I'm not the right person to ask because I, I'm in it. Like, I'm going to watch baseball no matter what. If the games took five hours, I'd watch them. Uh, and also, like, I do think that being a, a someone, a member of the press, sort of skews your perspective on this because uh, while I'm not watching a game, if I'm not, if I'm not watching it on my TV, I'm at the game. And in those cases... I am kind of pulling for them to move it along a little bit because I want to get home and I know that I'm going to have to, like, you know, an hour to two hours worth of work at, work to do right after the game. Yeah, it's actually interesting. And forgive me, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I can't even scratch the surface of baseball knowledge that is within the mind of Ted Berg, so I have to uh, I, I draw from other examples. But I will say that in cricket, um, this... this the, 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 this was the same problem, and it mm -hmm. still is a problem that uh, the uh, that the game takes too long, that it's too slow, that um, you have to commit a whole day, you know, on and on but and there's, on. There's a distinction between like what is it, 100 over cricket, right? That's like the there's a and 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 where a where a game will well a singular game will go on for days, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's nuts. No, so it's it's nuts, and but so somebody came along and created 2020 cricket, which. Um, it really helped cricket's popularity. Like, it kind of exploded, relatively speaking. And so what they did was that each um, each side, each cricket side, would uh, would would go to bat once, essentially. I'm trying to, trying to explain it, because this is actually a big change in cricket. Like, but basically, each side would go and only have uh, one chance to run through all their batters, and there would only be uh, 20 overs max, and an over is six balls. So it's an inning, basically. Um, and so th they, they managed to speed this up to create a league around it, and it did actually succeed in drawing people in, because not only were the games getting over quicker, but in order to win the games, um, you 
it actually ended up turning these cricketers into uh, sluggers, uh, for lack of a better word. You know, because if they've only got 20 overs, so whatever 20 times 6 is, um, that's however many balls they have to get as high a number of runs as possible. And so towards the end of those, especially, like, they would be going balls to the wall trying to get points on the board. Um, and, that, and it worked in cricket. Like, I don't know if you could have, you know, if you, it, it, it almost requires, like, a, a, a completely different, adopting a completely different rules of rules of baseball, right. which I can't believe there's any appetite for. But I will say that, like, in terms of case studies, like, this did work for cricket. Yeah, I mean, I to me the big one is, and and I know that there are a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions on this one, but to me the big one is just uh, adding some sort of clock for pitchers. There is a rule in the books that says with no one on base, a pitcher really should only have 12 seconds between pitches. Now, no pitcher in the majors averages as low, or no one, I don't think anyone in the majors averages less than something like 18 seconds between pitches. Uh, they Obviously, they never enforce that rule, and I don't think 12 seconds is feasible, but I think if you said you got 20 seconds from when you get back to the rubber to make your pitch, I think that shaves like 15 minutes off most baseball games, and it prevents the sort of like glacial late-inning guys. I don't know if you saw in the playoffs last year, but there's a guy in the Dodgers, Pedro Baez, who takes over 30 seconds between pitches on average. It's the longest in baseball. It is atrocious. It is just a horrible thing to watch because all you're watching is this guy standing on the mound. Like, I... I I get that there's like some there's some drama in baseball and not having a clock is like part of that and like that you're allowed to have these long pauses where the the tension sort of builds but at some point it becomes ridiculous and it's like now I'm just watching this guy just move it along buddy move it along and that frustrates me to me the solution is and I would do it at the minor leagues I would say every single minor league level every single game there's a pitch count clock I don't even know if you need it in the majors then because I think then you're just getting guys who've come through the system learning that rhythm. You pitch, you know, you get a pitch thrown in 18 or 20 seconds and that's how you pitch. And then, you know, and then if the guys, there are guys then at the majors who want to take their time, they can take their time because most guys are throwing faster. That would be what I would hope played out. Yeah, and like, and... And you wouldn't even need to, like, the way, and the way you apply that rule, for example, isn't simply by saying, like, okay, now you have 12 seconds to throw a pitch, which, as you said, is unfeasible, but you leak it in over time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 12 seconds is the end goal. Um, or, yeah, well, 12 seconds they'll never get to 12 seconds. That would look, they'll never get to tw- it would 12 look absurd. seconds. Is- I think it would look absurd. I don't, think, I don't think baseball fans would even want that, because I think you have, like, I have a rhythm to it, right, where you know yeah. when you can, like, look down or, like, oh, cool, like, a, he just walked, I'll go run, get a drink. You know, like, you have you have these times, this downtime to do stuff. 12 seconds would be, like, a blitz. I think it would tire pitchers out really fast. Yeah. Uh, so let's, But let's just say for the sake of argument, like, 12, 15 seconds or whatever is, like, the goal, even though it would be absurd. Like, you don't just start enforcing that immediately. You start for enforcing, like... 20 seconds and then down to 18 and then down to 15 and then down to 12 that's you know so like you leak it in over time and if you start doing that all the way up through uh from little league through major leagues like suddenly in a few years you're starting to see young pitchers who are pitching really fast um which is uh yeah which is i i think like seems to make sense um but i I don't know if it actually would i think the key for baseball is not because people say oh we'll shorten the game to seven innings that changes the whole face of the game, and I don't think that's ever going to happen. Uh, and I think also that would be uh, that would have a counterproductive effect because I think shortening a game to seven innings 
would make the pitching so much more dominant that no one's going to score any runs, and it's just not going to be as fun to watch. I like it. I mean, it's always been a nine-inning game. Nine-inning game feels right. Uh, there's nine players in the field. Like, nine is a big baseball number. That That's good. Uh, I think, to me, to me, the issue, and, and again, like, I, I'm in it, but if I'm Major League Baseball and I'm trying to make it more appealing to younger fans, which is a big part of what they're trying to do, I think it's about squeezing more action into a shorter amount of time. And to me, the way you do that is just to get them to move it along a little bit more. So, yeah. No. And also... And also just accepting that baseball is never going to look like, you know... The, it's not going to be the NBA. It's a different It's sport. never going to look like the yeah. NBA, exactly. Like, you, you know, so um, there's also an element of that. Like the Baseball sport, is for, like, the patient, refined fans in sports, you know? Like, this is where the, this is the smart guy sport. That's why I like it. <laughs> I like it. It's the smart, good-looking guy sport, right? right? Like, um, no, yeah, but... Uh, yeah, exactly. Like you, you can you can shave time off around the edges. You can always should always be trying to make your chosen sport better and more entertaining. But at the end of the day, like like you said, it's not going to be the NBA. There's only so far you can push things. And um, if you're trying to compromise everything about the sport in order to drag somebody uh, into watching it who doesn't really uh, want to watch any semblance of how it is now, like it doesn't it, you shouldn't necessarily be fretting over those people. All right, I want to get to more questions. This one comes from, this is a sports one from one of our coworkers, not a baseball question. It's from our man Charles Curtis, a past podcast guest, a recent podcast guest. He wants to know, and this is, I think, something you and he debated recently, uh, would you rather be a Falcons fan right now, coming off the disappointment of a blown Super Bowl win turned into embarrassing Super Bowl loss, or would you rather be a lifelong New York Knicks fan? <laughs> yeah, so you know, this goes this uh, this goes to the uh, classic question: Would you rather your team suck all the time, or be good and then get heartbroken? Um, I am a Falcons fan at this current moment, so it's so it's especially prescient. Um, I thought immediately after the result that I was like, you know what, why bother? Like, I'd rather not even get here at all than, than have to deal with uh, this this pain. But in oh, but it's about the ride, right? I, like, exactly. it's about the ride. Like, exactly, the, I mean, yeah. The end, of, the end of the show Lost was the most disappointing thing I've ever seen in my life. I am still angry about it, but that show entertained me so much on the way there. You know? Yeah, exactly. I think exactly. I think I was being irrational at the time. I think um, you don't you don't follow teams just for the win. You follow them for the journey, right? And like it's it's really not fun when you're just watching your team uh, dis suck in a really dysfunctional way I mean, year after year after year. There is no comparing being an Atlanta Falcons fan right now, or being a lifelong Knicks fan, and the Knicks <laughs> being the best example of this because the Knicks are just a horrendous operation. I'm sorry. Like, now Charles Oakley is getting... Charles Oakley, Knicks legend, like, beloved power forward of the last good Knicks teams, which were 20 years ago, and, <laughs> and he's getting beaten up by security guards at Madison Square Garden. And, and, and why? Because James Dolan, the owner, is mad that Charles Barkley, is, uh, Charles Oakley, sorry, is, is upset with the Knicks play. Like, I don't want to... No, no, no. One, like, a complete embarrassment. Every, it feels like every single, like, to even, outside of Porzingis, right? Like, outside of Porzingis, who is, like, still, like, the unicorn that everyone loves. It's just, like, 
being even remotely involved with the Knicks organization essentially means you are either already terrible or something terrible is going to happen to you. And it, it's, it's like New York is supposed to be the basketball capital of the country, right? It's got this reputation like, oh, you know, New York produces these great basketball players. It's the point guard capital of the world, whatever, all these different things. And they have this basketball team. And it's just never, they're never good. They, they keep hiring Isaiah Thomas. Like, I don't know how long you followed the Knicks or the Knicks saga, but, like, they, they made Isaiah Thomas the GM and the president. He was, like, the worst, he was the worst sports managing guy you could possibly imagine, culminating in an $11.5 million sexual harassment lawsuit. And then after that, they brought him back to run the New York Liberty. Like, it's just so outrageously dysfunctional that I can't imagine a world in which you'd rather be a lifelong Knicks fan than, like, a brief passing Falcons fan watching them lose in the Super Bowl. It's just it's not even close. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, th I think you're right. <laughs> and that was, by the way, that was such a brilliant rant that you just went I, on. I mean, I'm not even that close to it, honestly, because because I grew up, like, as a kid, a Knicks fan, I'm so far out of it now because I've just been beaten down. Like, I don't even care anymore. I don't even care. I cared about the Knicks for, like, three weeks when when Jeremy Lin was good. Uh, because you can't, you can't be, like, there, like, and I always think about that. Like, maybe I'd be really into the NBA if there were a team for me other than the Knicks. And then guess what? We got one, right? They were like, oh, good news. Now there's going to be another NBA team in New York, and it happens to play, like, two blocks from the bar where I hang out. And that team is somehow even worse than the Knicks. <laughs> well, yeah, and, well, and that's a thing, too, right? Like, there, there, there is... Even when you're like getting your heart broken in a in a Super Bowl like the Falcons just did, like there there is a there's happiness in the way that you got there. You know, there's there's just no like if you look at a Knicks, if you look at a, a you know a big Knicks fans is like high points over the last. I don't know, pick a number, 20 years? Like, it's just so There's spare. no time and when the, you're like, ah, it was uh, a fun run. It was never been that. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the thing. Like, it, and there's just such, like, uh, you know, it's just it just breaks you, the kind of hopelessness yeah, of, like, year like, after year. And, like, again, like, I'm not even that close to it. It's just you can't avoid it. You're like... Yeah. Charles Oakley, that was like my favorite guy, and now I'm watching video of him like tackled to the ground at Madison Square Garden. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like the Cleveland Browns, right? Like, but although I feel like even the Cleveland Browns, they're dis they're, they're dysfunctional in a way where they just suck yeah. on the field all the time. Like, there, there's all kinds of stuff going on with the Knicks, and then that plus that vibe. Because yes, there's always this drama to it too. Like now yeah. their best player and their GM hate each other, and they just fire shots at each other on Twitter. That just doesn't happen with other organizations. Well, and that's the thing too. Like just being in in, in New York too. It whereas, amplifies like, everything for sure. It, yeah, like New York just hammers pretty good teams. <laughs> when you, right. And when you have like not just a bad team, but like an embarrass, but a bad team that also does like embarrassing things, it just like makes it so much worse. Yeah, I feel like it's it's I've I've I'm not sure. 
like outside of possibly the Jets, I'm not sure there's a worse organization in sports to to be a loyal fan of. Um, I would say, I mean, the Browns are up there. Yeah, like there's maybe there's a. I don't even I don't know hockey well enough to say like oh that's the team that always sucks. Um, you know, but it just like the Knicks for for not just for that they always suck, but like the the vicious way they suck every single year makes them I think probably the worst the worst team to root for. It's so funny too because when I moved to America, it was like in the, it, so you know it was in the post Patrick Ewing like a Knicks um, don't just don't just suck, but like they were like maybe the worst team in basketball, and they have no draft picks because they traded them all the way, uh, to, all the way, yeah. and Eddie, you know, and they had Eddie Curry, and they had like just all this money tied up in terrible players. <laughs> And I do remember, like... I mean, the uh, league had to make a rule to get them out of Alan Houston's contract, and then they didn't use it for Alan Houston. <laughs> like, and my, uh, you know, my best friend is a Nick, is like a, is, is one of the Knicks fans who, like, just tries to, you know, tries to, like, be their game in, game out. And it just, like, it really is, like, a situation where you're like, wow, there is no way out of this hell hole. <laughs> It's awful. It's awful. They need to, like I said, I joked about it. Just seriously, like, contract. I would rather, uh, like, and, and again, like, I know that there, I know I have friends who are such passionate Knicks fans and who, who still have hope, you know. I honestly would rather they were just, like, contract this team, start completely fresh, like, just expansion draft, start a new team in New York, let them play Madison Square Garden, great setting for basketball, perfect, just anybody but the Knicks. And I would jump, I would be on board from day one. I really don't understand. I mean, Ted, maybe you can explain this to me. Like, I honestly don't really understand how New York sports teams can really be, like, bad for any significant period of time. Well, I mean, well, like, money's not an issue, right? It starts like, at the top. I mean, in, in all cases, it starts at the top when things are going wrong with New York sports teams. Uh, and maybe that's just the way that it's been portrayed uh, historically, but, like, you know, I, I have to feel like it's it's James Dolan's influence on the Knicks that made them bad for a long time. He seems like a guy who meddles for sure when he's not touring with his blues band as like a billionaire fronting a blues band, which is itself like a hilarious contradiction. Um, and like when the Yankees went awry in the late 80s before the early 90s before the like the late 90s when they when they became the, the dynasty again that was George Steinbrenner having too big of a role in their in their decisions uh, when the Mets went went bad uh, following like 2006 it was because their owners had been swindled by Bernie Madoff and and they couldn't spend any money anymore um, it always feels like that I don't, I don't know that that's I mean, the, the Giants are never bad, so then the Giants are the team with the owners everyone loves. Um, I don't know that that's been the issue with the Jets. I don't really know what's wrong with the Jets. It's just they're, they're just doomed. But see, the thing is, too, like, I agree that with the Knicks, it does start at the top, right? And it is James Dolan. But there's so much scrutiny in New York. I mean... Every media, every massive media outlet basically is based here. You've got two tabloids plus Newsday. You've got fa so many fans. Like, that's a lot of scrutiny to suck in the face of, you know? <laughs> like, when you have, like, angry fans breathing down your neck um, the second you step out of line, that tends to have a corrective habit, right? Like, you it tends to... You would hope, but... 
You uh, would hope I don't know. Have you been have, have, you, have you been paying any attention to politics lately, Luke? <laughs> <laughs> Well, without without addressing that, um, you know, like it, it it has that effect in a market like Boston, for example. You know, right. big fan base, passionate fan base. If an owner steps out of line, like their feet are held to the fire, and so suddenly you get these really smart owners coming along, being like, "Now nah, we're not gonna we're not going to uh, hold our feet to the fire." But again, maybe it has the maybe it has the opposite effect. All right, uh, we got a few more, and I want to get through them quick. Uh, so. Uh, to go with a uh, complete non-sports one from at Mickey Metz, who is Joe on Twitter. He wants to know the worst sandwich I have ever eaten or you have ever eaten. Uh, do you have a worst sandwich off the top of your head? I don't have a worst sandwich. I will say that I have a worst high-profile sandwich, like okay. a, a, a sandwich that people talk about. But um, That's it, what I want to hear. Okay. It was... I actually, it's so bad that I've actually forgotten the name of the people who do it, and this is maybe a bit of a spicy take, but I really didn't enjoy that sandwich in Pittsburgh that I ate, that they put okay, the French fries. Okay, that's Cremonti Brothers um, yeah. with the French fries on it. Yeah, I just didn't, I thought the French fries were too much. I liked the slaw a lot, um, but like there was a big hunk of bread and a bunch of fries that ended up getting pretty soggy, and all you kind of tasted was the fries. And I was like, and I'm not saying it's a bad sandwich relative to every sandwich, but I'm saying I was... Deeply disappointed by that sandwich because I was pretty excited going in. Yeah, I think that the French fries are not really that good of an addition to a sandwich because they just add starch and it's they don't really add a lot else. You know, because they're they're not they're not crunchy by the time you're eating the sandwich, right? Like they're they've already been sogged up by whatever else is on the sandwich, so they're just making it like basically breadier. And I prefer my sandwiches meatier, but I do think like. I, I would, if someone handed me that sandwich right now, I would 100% eat it. So I don't know that that would be the worst sandwich I've ever yeah, eaten. Yeah, I want to clarify. Like, I'm adapting this a bit to saying, like, right. it will, not the worst sandwich. Maybe, like, the biggest surprise disappointment. I would say um, all, all the worst sandwiches I've had gave me food poisoning, right? Like, that would be what <laughs> makes a sandwich terrible. Um, one beloved mainstream sandwich, and this is like a, a, a shooting fish in a barrel, uh, but... I think the McRib is pretty disgusting, to be honest. I know like people get super geared up about the McRib every time it comes back. I feel like the McRib is a remnant of a time when Americans didn't really know about barbecue, like when regional barbecue styles hadn't spread yet, and so people could be like, pork covered in barbecue sauce, hey, it's really good, who knew? And it's like, well, all of the Carolinas and Texas knew, you know, and Kansas City knew, um, and, and but for us in New York and, and people elsewhere, we're we don't have barbecue cultures, you know, we had McRibs, but now we have real ribs, and they're way better, right, and like the, I don't know, I find the McRib, I find the sauce gross, I find the reconstituted pork patty kind of gross, and I'm not into like the giant pile of onions they throw on it, I think the McRib, wildly overrated, not something I'm nostalgic for, not something I go nuts about when they bring it back to McDonald's. Can I ask you a quick sandwich question, yes. Ted? Um, about, so, when I came to America, I came to the South, Southeast in South Carolina, and um, their pulled pork, is, the pork is cooked in and put, cooked in and served in the sauce. Um, then I came up here. Well, so South Carolina is it like a mustard sauce or a vinegar sauce? South Carolina is the is mustard. Okay. Is mustard sauce. Yeah. But um, but anyway, so then I came up here and pulled porks served dry with sauce 
on top of it. And I was kind of outraged at first. I still don't like it as much. But, um, but I see. I, I feel like that's more the the North Carolina style. Yeah, uh, like they use a, like a, they use a they use a vinegar sauce that you can't that's so thin that it makes the pork a little more moist, but you don't really notice that that there's sauce on there sometimes. Yeah, um, and that and it is like a north south thing, I guess. But like, I'm always surprised by that. But there are people. Well, no, it's not even. Like, well, it's North Carolina versus South. Like, it's not even North South. It's just like hyper local regional. Oh, place. it's a hyper local yeah. North South. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, cool. like, I think the barbecue place you're eating here, it's it's just depending on like what style of barbecue. So, like, uh, Mighty Quinn's, which is a really good barbecue place. I know you've been to because I went there with you uh, in yes. our neighborhood. That's Texas style barbecue, and Texas style is. No sauce on the barbecue sauce with your barbecue, um, mm. whereas I guess like South Carolina, there might be the sauce on it already. Yeah, it's kind of within it, and I and I like it much better. But I was surprised that that wasn't like the norm. Um, I was wondering which one you liked better. Um, I like. I would say it depends on the quality. Like to me, it's just all about the quality of the meat and how it was prepared. You know, so like I I like. I do find the unsauced pulled pork can be a little bit dry for me um, yeah. if it's not if it's not really really good and really really fresh. Um, but I've kind of moved towards in my barbecue preferences. I've moved strongly towards brisket and uh, brisket. I like you know without sauce on top, just like a little bit of sauce for dipping. Interesting. Inter this is a very well reasoned take. Actually. All right. Um, real quick ones. Uh, Luke, one golf course you could play. Ooh, one golf. I mean, uh, Augusta National is so boring, but uh, but I would jump at the chance to to play there. I got um, one. I got one. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Caddyshack two. You ever seen Caddyshack two? <laughs> uh, I haven't. Uh, Caddyshack two. So it's not as good as Caddyshack one. But in Caddyshack two, they they turn the whole golf course into like a giant mini golf course, like a full scale golf course, but with mini golf. Uh, you know, complexities, I guess, including like Randy Quaid dressed as a hockey goalie beating you up. I would love <laughs> to play that golf course. <laughs> Bushwood. So they just adapted Bushwood. I know I haven't seen it because I know it's. I, I know it's not very good. Um. By the way, thank you for saying. I, I was not expecting in the podcast last week for you to say that golf movies were the best golf of all. Movies your sports are very movies. good outside of Tin Cup, which I think probably sucks. Oh man, I really like Tin Cup, but right. but but either way, we're allies in this. That the golf, I was I was amazingly surprised and so thrilled that you said that. Um, this does not appeal to you. This is from at uh, underscore Doc Ellis. I he wants to know: Will Eric Campbell have an OPS over eight fifty in Japan? Eric Campbell, uh, long time Mets sort of fringe AAA major league guy that Mets fans just hate for some reason. I don't really know why, um, except that he hasn't really performed much at the major league level. Every time they send him down to AAA, he tears it up. So, yes, I do think he will have an OPS over 850 in Japan. Uh, Japan, the Japanese league, there's there's some uh, particulars that are different. I think you get more curveballs there, by, at least by reputation. Uh, so it's not an exact correlation, but I think you can say, like, if a guy is is routinely uh, putting up good numbers in AAA. He's probably going to put up good numbers in Japan. So I'll go with a yes on that one. Do you have a take? I don't um, have a take. I my, my, take is that I, my, take. my take is that I totally agree with everything Ted just said. All right, perfect. Um, this comes from at Giraffe, Raphael Jerez. He wants to know when Mike Trout's career end, how many, many years from now does he break Barry Bonds' record for most MVPs? 
the you know if you're if you're handicapping this, you should say no because having seven MVP awards is unlikely. It's always unlikely. You always bet on the mean in baseball. But uh, as a giant Mike Trout fan, I will say yes. I think that uh, for one thing, he is. Two ahead of Bonds, where Bonds was at this time. Uh, obviously, you can't expect Trout to hit like Bonds did in, in his late 30s. No, no one has ever hit like that before, and probably no one will again. Uh, but I think that Trout uh, is starting, again, Bonds didn't win his first until he was 25. Trout has two. He just turned 25. Uh, Trout's been the best player in baseball every single season he's played. There's no reason to believe he'll stop doing that anytime soon. And I think his win this year suggests that uh, voters are coming around to the idea that a guy might be the most valuable player despite not playing on the best team. Do you have a take? (laughs) Again, again, in an an amazing twist, you took everything out of my mouth that I was about to say. All right, um, last question, and this one's for both of us. This is from Maggie. Uh, who also asked about the golf course you could play. Maggie Hendricks, our, our colleague, she wants to know, what is the best thing you have ever baked? Ooh. Do you bake? Are you a baker? Big baker. Big huh. baker. But only of savory of savory pies and such. Uh, um, okay. Yes, yes. I don't, I don't make sweet pies. Um, I made a beef wellington, which we have talked about on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I am still very proud of, proud of. One time I took, like, Pillsbury biscuit dough, and I... I Wrapped around a hot dog with, with bacon and cheese in there and I called it biscuit dog. I, I like that a lot. <laughs> that, does, that does sound good, though, in fact. Oh, it was really good. <laughs> it was really good. It was no, no joke. Uh, it was really good. I, I, top of my head. I mean, I also cook, pretend to prepare bacon in the oven or the toaster oven, so if you count that, then just bacon is probably the best thing I've ever baked. But most of my cooking is uh, grilling or smoking or frying oriented. Oh, yes. Yeah, I love making pies. Um, big into shepherd's pie recently. Um, I want to try to make a fish pie, which I haven't yet. But, um, uh, that sounds yeah. gross to me. Um, I, didn't... I, I, I know, but look it up. It kind of looks appealing, but so, maybe you, you'll disagree. Uh, well, so my, as I've mentioned, my grandma was Scottish, and she used to get uh, Scottish meat pies shipped in from Scotland. Like when they, Now you can find places in, in New York City where you can get stuff like that, but I guess you know this is the 80s and early 90s. She used to have to get Scottish meat pies shipped to her, and she would present it, and I loved her. I loved my grandma. She was a wonderful grandmother. She would present us these Scottish meat pies as though they were like treats. Like, oh my God, guess what I got you guys? Scottish meat pies. And they were horrible. <laughs> it was like, oh, you gotta like kind of grin and eat the Scottish meat pie now because your grandma's so excited about it. But it was not good. It was not good. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, that's, and that's I don't know why. I love everything. In, I like meat and I like pie. Right? I don't know why I wouldn't that's like That's interesting. Has it scarred you from pie? Because like, it's pretty hard to screw up a pie. Like, it's not like you can overcook the meat, really. It's you know? like just so like gray and I don't know. There was just something weird about it to me. I just, I don't know. I was, again, I'm like nine years old when this is happening, so uh, my palate has probably changed. And like, do, you I, like, do, you, do you like shepherd's pie and things? I love shepherd's pie. Um, I don't, I like it in concept, but I've never really enjoyed it in execution, would be my huh, answer on shepherd's interesting. pie. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm all about a savory pie, but I'm more about like an empanada or a Jamaican beef patty. 
Interesting, interesting. Yeah, no, I'm a big, big pie guy, but I'm try I'm trying to figure out if it was the execution that makes you not like them, or it's simply a I just don't you just don't really like them, which also makes sense, which would also be a thing. I would say I probably like them, but uh, that is not like something I again like. If I'm going for a savory pastry, no offense, it's just not coming from the British Isles most of the time. That makes sense. I will say too that savory that like there is no real difference between, like, a, 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 the reason a pie is good is basically because of the crust, right? Like, well, see, no. See, no. No. Well, no, uh, no. What I'm saying is what distinguishes it is because of the crust, because the inside of a pie is all prepared, you know, it's all like the portion of a pie that's actually baked is is pretty minimal, right? Like you just bake the crust, you bake it all together, but like you assemble the insides of the pie, not baking it at all. You you assemble it over the, um, unless you're stewing it, I guess. But that's what's so interesting. That's what's interesting about it to me. It, so have you ever had like a Jamaican beef patty? No, no, I haven't. Oh well, first of all, you should get on that. And they're spicy. You have to if you like spicy food. First of all, one thing to know is that they're extraordinarily consistent. I have found that like it, it outside of like a few places that make especially good ones. For the most part, like the Jamaican beef patty you get at the at the bodega is going to be the same as the one at the at the pizza place. Is going to be the same at the as the one as like at certain specific Jamaican pastry takeout places. And they're all incredible. It's basically like a sort of spicy, like jerky taco meat almost inside of a pie, as you would say, like a, a flaky pastry crust. They're really good. Well, there's a few Jamaican places around us too, so I should get on that. Yes, um, we should go. It's we, we're we're going up on 50 minutes, so let's let's call it a day. You can check out the the For the One podcast on iTunes. Please rate us, review us, subscribe. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher. Luke writes tons of stuff on the internet. I write some stuff on the internet. Going to spring training soon, so I'll have a lot from down there, and we'll be podcasting from there as well. Uh, you can check out Luke on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else, uh, and you can check out me most of those same places. Luke, thanks again for joining. Thank you, Ted. Peace out.